WDBM East Lansing. The impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Emmanuel Berry, and you are listening to Impact Exposure. Today on Exposure, we talk Michigan's 25 by 2025 ballot measure, help students figure out where to vote, and take an audio tour of Grand Rapids Art Prize. But first, these headlines. A new policy will go into effect Monday with the intention of taking a bite out of generational poverty through education, according to MLive. The policy requires parents who are applying for benefits to prove to the state human services department that their children are in fact attending classes. To get benefits, parents need a form from the child's school proving attendance. And in national news, the 67th session of the U.N. General Assembly started this week. According to Reuters today, President Obama addressed the leaders of the world, warning Iran that he would take action if they attempted to attain nuclear weapons. He also cited the recent death of U.S. Ambassador Christopher Stevens as a rallying cry to end violence and intolerance. What had sparked the violence that killed Ambassador Stevens? A small-budget independent film produced by an American which mocks the Muslim faith. Since the film's production, there has been many violent outbreaks across the world, but the event has also had an impact on Muslims here in the Lansing area. Impact's Abigail Newton reports. This international turmoil has caused much interpersonal turmoil for many Muslims in East Lansing. They feel disrespect from the video, but are also frustrated by the actions of their fellow Muslims. It awes me that it has come to that point because we breathe, live, contribute, everything is our religion. You know what I'm saying? So it's just like it kind of helped me as far as my lifestyle goes, not just like that religious perspective in my life. That was Michigan State University International Studies senior Diba Mohamedullah. She is a Muslim who was born in Afghanistan and grew up during the Taliban rule with her 13 brothers and sisters. She can still remember images from her childhood in Afghanistan. I remember Taliban's going all the time, patrolling the streets with their Toyota trucks and red Toyota trucks and shooting and going, killing anybody right on the street. And just you'll see like people just lay down. Why? Because they just got shot. Everybody had to flee that our home. My mom was pregnant with my little sister. And like we had to leave with no food, no nothing. If you want food, you know, a lot of people crawled up to their apartments. It was like a basement in a big apartment building. Crawled up and they never made it back. After her parents and some of her siblings passed away, Diba and two of her siblings moved to America in 2002. At the age of 12, Diba was greeted with much discrimination and hate because of her Muslim faith. In dealing with her troubling situation, Diba immersed herself completely in her religion. Religion, I have to say, by far has been the most thing that I've held on to. Since I don't have anything, that's the one thing I do. Diba's religion was her tool to overcome her situation and move forward. Once she heard about the anti-Islamic videos and the events following, she felt tremendous disrespect and hurt. Michigan State Associate Professor in the Department of English, Salah Hassan, is a core faculty member in Muslim Studies. He provides an analysis of the anti-Islamic film. It uh, sexualizes the Prophet Muhammad in a very negative way. It shows him engaged in sex acts, and so it has this kind of pseudo-pornographic side to it. And if, like, if one tried to imagine the portrayal of Moses, for example, um, you know, engaged in um, oral sex, you know, how would Jews feel about that? Maybe they wouldn't protest in the way that these protests have been going on, but they would find it extremely offensive. He also believes the video served as a pretext for protest on deeper issues. 
one can't get around the fact that that something something is at work here and that the protests aren't merely protests against this film. They're also protests against a longstanding American policy in the region, which has been one of either supporting dictatorships or when people are really suffering and in need of support, not the U.S. not actually stepping up and, and providing the kind of support that people would expect. Public opinion in the Middle East towards the U.S. and among Muslims is very fragile because in some cases the United States has taken positions that have been hostile. Michigan State University Assistant Professor of Religious Studies Mohammed Khalil is also in the core faculty of Muslim Studies. Khalil analyzes how freedom of speech in America impacted the events. Many Muslims, they live under authoritarian governments, and they're used to their governments stepping in and censoring uh, if something is deemed offensive. They're not used to living with the kind of freedom of speech standard that we have here in the United States. And so from the perspective of many, there was this confusion as to why the government wasn't stepping in. So part of it is related to more of, I would say, confusion about or an unfamiliarity with freedom of speech, American freedom of speech. Hassan also believes heightened media coverage has been increasing the intensity of the events. It has also created stronger Muslim stereotypes. Well, I think part of the problem is when you see, when these dominate the headlines and you see throngs of people in the streets, it's very tempting to reach the, the conclusion that this is representative of what Muslims worldwide think. What, of course, people miss is that these people represent a very small proportion of the Muslim population. And in fact, according to a recent Gallup survey of Muslim views worldwide, the overwhelming majority of Muslims uh, rejected the wanton violence that occurs in its faith. East Lansing Islamic Center President Tassin Sardar also finds much discomfort with the actions of his fellow Muslims. The Quran, for example, records uh, numerous occurrences of all our prophets, starting from Adam to Jesus to uh, Muhammad, all of whom were taunted and mocked and ridiculed by people at different times. And the, their approach, their response was to repel evil with good deed. And if people want to emulate the prophet, and if that is what they're passionate about, they should be, uh, I mean, they should show mercy and they should uh, not be doing all this violent stuff. Uh, I mean, I, I understand that they're passionate, they're upset, um, but I think uh, what they are doing is contrary to the teachings of Islam. Sadar hopes the community understands how the attacks have impacted East Lansing Muslims. For, for the local people, we want them to realize that we are as much affected by this tragedy as anybody else. An attack on the U.S. Embassy is an attack on all of us, uh, American Muslims included. So we grieve with the rest of America on this tragedy, and we hope we can come out of this by stopping this hate. And people, the people who are not Muslims, we ask you to bear with us and to try and understand us more. Sadar and the Islamic Center are trying to learn from recent events and give advice for fellow Muslims on how to overcome hatred and stereotyping. In order not to give in to the people who are trying to provoke us, um, my personal advice to fellow Muslims is to ignore it and keep moving on with life. If somebody is doing it at your face, uh, just say peace be upon you and keep on moving. Reporting for Impact, I'm Abby Newton. You're listening to Impact Exposure on...
Emmanuel Berry, and you are listening to Impact Exposure. Now in studio, we welcome blue songsters Twyla Birdsong. Twyla, along with three other female blue performers, will take part in Mid-Michigan's Women of the Blues event, uh, which will be on September 29th at Uli's House of Rock. Yes. Welcome to Exposure. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Talk a little bit about this event. Why did you decide to bring all these women together and have a night celebrating women in the blues? Well, um, it started when I, in July, the beginning of July, I went to Big Rapids where Cherie Williams was um, performing at a festival. And I went down there with um, Queen Bee, Bonnie Sumner. She's actually the founder of the CABS, Capital Area Blue Society. Anyways, I enjoyed hanging with her. And, of course, I always love hearing Cherie Williams. I don't know if you know of her, but she's a gospel blues artist. And my roots come from the um, gospel. So when I first time I heard her was at the Green Door in Lansing a few years ago. And um, I just enjoyed the experience when I went to Big Rapids. And when I was we were driving back home, I was thinking, man, it'd be nice if she came back here. But I was like, I'm not going to wait for someone else to bring her back. So it just kind of developed from that. I had just recently uh, went to Uli's because they started having... Um, a blues open mic jam on Sunday nights. So that was my first time going in there uh, probably a few weeks prior to that. And when I went in there, they have that big, huge stage that they rock out on all the time. Well, my first time seeing it, I was like, that's a diva stage right there. (laughs) (laughs) So when I was trying to decide where to have the um, event, you know, that just seemed um, normal for me to do. And then it just kind of progressed from there. I had seen Kathleen Murray, uh, I think last year at our uh, Old Town Blues Festival, which just happened this uh, last weekend. I don't mm-hmm. know if you were able to go, yep. but um, it's phenomenal every year. But I saw her last year, and she had the horn. She was grooving out, powerful, beautiful. She, I love her hair. And she was <laughs> owning that stage, and um, she did a tune that I've been wanting to do for years. i got to serve somebody. So she just really stuck with me, and then... Uh, Thornetta Davis, I saw her for the first time at Leroy's in Lansing a couple of years ago, and then I was able to go to Frankenmuth and saw her at, I can't remember the name of the place, it's a beer place, but anyways, with Larry Mm McRae, and I just love her voice, it's um, her vibrato and um, her style, everything, I I just love her, so I was like, you know, I'm going to make this a sister night, and at first I was just going to do those three, but I was like, what, I can sing too. So I put myself in there also, and I'm just really looking forward to it. It's uh, been a lot of work. I'm not used to being on the side of putting the event Mm -hmm. on. I love doing the performing and singing and entertaining people, making them happy. Uh, So it's a lot of work on the other end, kind of nerve-wracking, but I'll be so glad when the party is actually here. Why celebrate women in the blues? What's special about ladies who sing the blues? You know, men, it's really a uh, male-dominated industry, and um, but the women, you know, we're powerful. We have our, you know, in our own right, and we own it on the stage, and we more more than likely we get the blues from the males. <laughs> so, you know, just a time for us to be celebrated. Not not really celebrated. Just uh, it's not even about celebrating the women. It's just about us sharing what we do. I don't know. So how did you get into the blues? What what oh, wow. drew you to sing this this type of music? 
Well, I say it all the time. It's like uh, I grew up in church, so it's gospel. But, you know, it's all related, really. Uh, listening to the Mighty Clouds of Joy and um, Andre Crouch. Uh, but then going out of town sometimes with my uncle, he'd be in his, uh, we'd be in the back of his 98 going down to Indiana because that's where I'm, my hometown. And he'd have ZZ Hill and B.B. King going all the way down. So, you know, just it's a good feel for me. And um, but like 10 years ago, uh, actually, yeah, about 10 years ago, that's when I actually started doing like singing blues in a band. And I didn't know what I was doing leading <laughs> out a, a, a band. But um, I started in a garage band with the West Side Healers. And at the time, I was going through a lot of depression. And um, I kind of warred with doing the blues because my mom was like, you're probably depressed because you're singing that blues. <laughs> Because my mom was a, a minister. But really, the only time that I was really happy is when I was performing. So I quickly realized that I need to go with what is making me happy. Mm-hmm. And um, through prayer, God, and some medication, too, in the blues, I saw myself out of the depression. Someone, I think we had someone on last week who said they played the blues to get over the blues. That so, is so true. Yeah. People, people who do it get it. And people who don't do it don't really get it. Yeah. Um, What makes someone a good blues singer, a good blues performer? I don't really know. What, what, I get, when, what do I like? Yeah, when when you go on stage, why did you, 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 when you were talking about these women that you gathered to be part of this event, you were like, I love her vibrato, mm-hmm. I love her mm-hmm. hair. What what are some other qualities? They that... totally own it. They're not just doing it. It's not a show. It's it's. It becomes a show because they feel in it. It's coming directly from their heart and their soul. That's what I love. When you're doing it from your heart and your soul, the audience, they feel it. And, you know, it brings them out of whatever they might be going through right there because you're sharing your heart and your soul with them, which is a good vibe. It's a good feel. And um, that's what I really get a dig into. Um, a good guitar riff is, is nice. A bass line is necessary. A drum, a nice drum, uh, um, bass drum is good too. But when that lead singer is owning it and and giving it to you and telling that story, because that's what a song is, it's just a conversation Mm -hmm. with the melody. And when you can relate to that, that's powerful to me. Would you mind uh, giving us a little preview of the event you're going to be singing at the event? Would you mind singing a little something for us now? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Got a little warm up here, a little uh, voice warm up. Well, I actually wasn't going to sing something from the event um, because it's it's going to be high energy that night. But I will sing this because I, I think it'll be more suited for um, for acapella. All right, let's hear it. Actually, this song is uh, by Cherie Williams. Um, so goodness, I haven't done this acapella really. I've been seeking, I've been searching, still I can't find nobody to love me like you do. Nobody but you. No one can love me like you do. Nobody but you, yes. Well, you hold me 
in the morning and you touch me late at night well you touch me when i'm lonely you are the only one that treats me right Ooh, i've been seeking i've been searching Still I can't find nobody to love me the way you do. No, nobody but you. That was Twyla Bird's song, uh, singing there. Uh, so if people want to go to this Woman of the Blues event, where can they find more information? They can go to, uh, they can like me on Facebook. Please like me at Twyla, that's uh, T-W-Y-L-A-B-I-R-D-S-O-N-G, um, Facebook, Yahoo, Facebook. <laughs> and then they can also email me, uh, Twyla Birdsong at Yahoo.com. Also, Twyla Birdsong, Reverb Nation. Uh, we have, I have some songs on there that I've done with my band called the hoop um, the band is called the hoop um, so there's several songs on there that they can hear uh, a little bit more of what i do all right uh thank you so much for coming and enjoying us today and for that beautiful song thank you very much that was twyla bird song she's going to be performing in mid-michigan woman of blues event this saturday at uli's house of rock yes you're listening to impact exposure here Th- thanks again man it was good wait time. you were uh you were hitting it pretty hard tonight are you, are you good to drive heck yeah i am amazing at driving yeah man you sure i mean i can call a cab or we fine. can uh, we can get somebody to take you home yeah, you know? yeah don't worry i'm good okay uh hey text me when you get back okay stop right there this is stupid he's drunk friends don't let friends drink and drive ever a message from 88.9 the impact for more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime Time. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights from 8 until 10 p.m., the Impact Flashback is your retro music alternative, playing your old favorites from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Only on Impact Primetime. In a world where radio was repetitive and mundane, in a time when FM is plagued by the same 15 songs, an army of new songs are called to battle, and only the strongest survive. Every Sunday night from 8 till 10, sit or spin, only on Impact 89 FM. Now back to Impact Exposure. Emmanuel Berry, and you are listening to Impact Exposure. Students willfully give up the comforts of home-cooked meals and free laundry to experience a life on the college campus to become responsible citizens who will contribute to society. For many, November will be the first time will be their first time voting. That is, if they can figure out where to vote. Impact's Anjana Schrader reports. The election could very well come down to young voters. The young vote will make a difference. Young voters have always been the key to winning the White House. I mean, young people are very, very important. I think it's going to be a real competition for young people's votes. 
Michigan State University's student government, ASMSU, hosted the U-Vote event encouraging students to vote. But registering to vote was not so simple. Students had questions. The main one? Where to vote? always vote in Michigan until I personally change it to start voting in Illinois again? Yeah, you can. Questions like this are nothing new. The legal director for the American Civil Liberties Union of Michigan, Michael Steinberg, said, a bill was introduced by former Representative Mike Rogers requiring a person to have the same registration address as it appears on their driver's license. Most people viewed it as an effort to suppress the student vote. Uh, many students, of course, had their license in their hometown and were not interested in changing the address um, for fear that they'd miss um, mailings or whatever because, of course, students move every year. And as a result, uh, many fewer students voted. The time it takes to drive from Lansing to mom and dad's, vote, and then drive back may not seem worth it to some. Voting absentee is an option, but not for first-time voters, who are required to vote in person their first year. Nursing student Dominique Jones wants to make sure she has the time to vote in November. This is my fifth year being in Lansing, so I just figured I'll register somewhere closer to my new home. So do some students just not vote? Many students on campus are just plain confused and don't know what to do. Impact reporter Lindsay Benson talks to students on campus. I am registered, but I'm absentee vote, so I don't know. Where, where are you from? New York. So you don't know like how to vote on campus? Yes, I don't. Yes, I still, I still need to. I'm still registering right now, so I don't, I do not know where to go. So yes, I am confused. Students have three options. If this is not their first time voting, they can vote absentee. But if this is their first time voting, they will have to vote in the city on their driver's license. To get around this, students can just change the address on their license, and their voting location also changes. Despite the confusion, students still think it is important to vote. Like, I don't think it matters where. I don't know if it does make a difference where they vote at. I feel like it's something you should do if you're a citizen in the U.S. If you have the right to do it, you should go out and do it. Steinberg of the American Civil Liberties Union of Michigan recommends the website Student Voting Made Easy. What we recommend generally for people who can't decide is that they vote on campus because that's where they are on, and that's where they'll be on November 6th. But students need to act soon because the deadline to register to vote is October 9th. For Impact Exposure, I'm Anjana Schrader. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Emmanuel Berry, and you're listening to Exposure. November 6 is fast approaching, and while Michiganders will be voting for president and in the senatorial races, they will also have the chance to vote on Proposal 3. The proposal requires that 25% of Michigan's energy comes from renewable sources by 2025. I talked with Samantha Keeney and David Anderson from the Union of Concerned Scientists about the ballot initiative. Talk about what is the 25 by 2025 plan. Sure. Yeah. So it is a people-powered ballot initiative here in the state of Michigan. Um, basically, more than 
530,000 people signed a petition to put clean energy on the ballot in Michigan this year. And the proposal would require the state to get 25% of its energy from renewable sources like wind and solar, biomass and hydro by the year 2025. And so is this is this something is this a law or is this something that's going on to the cons- the state constitution? What is the I guess yeah, what how is this legislatively working? So legislatively, it's working as a constitutional amendment. Um, The Constitution of Michigan actually allows um, people to have the power to make law, and it actually states that all political power in the state is derived in the people. So it's a way for people to say, hey, we want more clean energy. And right now, at least judging by the number of people who signed for it and all the polls, it seems like a majority of people want it to happen. So. Now, we currently in Michigan, we have um, a law which says that we need to have 10% of Michigan's energy or electricity needs to be from renewable sources by 2015. Why take it a step further and already planning ahead so much with trying to get this um, proposal voted in? Right. Well, 2015 is not too far away. We want to make sure that utilities have plenty of time to get planning and get things done, build upon the success that's happened so far. The current RES has actually been quite successful. Um, A recent study by the Public Service Commission in Michigan found that renewable energy, in particular wind, is actually more affordable than new coal power plants right now. So part of it's planning for the future of when the old power plants that currently make up many much of the electricity capacity of the state um, are too old to function anymore, what will they be replaced with? And right now it seems like renewable energy is a good bet. You've mentioned some of the different types of uh, renewable energy. Uh, Sam, can you talk a little bit about how this will affect jobs in Michigan? So we are anticipating um, job growth in relation to this. We're There's a recent study that actually just came out by Michigan State University, um, which is anticipating thousands of additional jobs in relation to building upon uh, renewable energy standard. Um, it's a pretty great study. People should check it out. You can go online, Michigan State University website, um, and, and find it. So we're talking, um, oh, what about potentially displacing people in jobs? So if we're talking about pulling back on coal um, and and using less of it, uh, are there any projections about how it could potentially negatively affect the number of jobs um, in Michigan? I don't think that the ballot initiative in particular, you know, calls out to close certain coal plants. It's basically just saying we should make this a, a goal that people in Michigan support of 25% renewable energy, there'll still be that 75% that we can get somewhere else. So there's plenty of flexibility for the state to decide where it wants to go with those things. How would this plan create, I guess, a, a healthier state for Michigan? What are the health benefits of this plan? In a lot of different ways. Um, basically, by um, increasing renewable energy use, it will decrease the amount of air pollution that is uh, generated by power plants. So you're talking about air pollution that in particular affects um, urban populations and minorities, but you're also talking about mercury pollution in the Great Lakes, as you may be aware. Um, you know, it's home to some of the best fishing in the world. People come here from mm-hmm. everywhere to fish in the lakes, but um, coal-burning power plants are currently one of the number one sources of mercury emissions in the region. So that's something that limits the amount of people who come here to fish or even live here can eat from what they catch here. 
And you guys are actually coming out with a study on coal soon. Um, any interesting findings in that? Correct. It's actually, yeah, it's actually out. came out oh, already. Sorry. So it's called uh, Burning Coal, Burning Cash. And essentially what it's looking at is ways like uh, Proposal 3, which is the Renewable Energy Ballot Initiative, um, that can keep our energy dollars local instead of sending them out of state to import fossil fuels. Um, so one of the things that we found is the state's two largest utilities, um, Detroit Edison and Consumers Energy, together sent more than a billion dollars out of state in 2010 to import coal. And between um, 2002 and 2010, actually sent more than $10 billion out of state. So part of the idea is you can create healthier communities and more jobs by keeping those energy dollars local and taking advantage of the abundant renewable resources we have here, like wind and the sun. Um, the mallet measure also has a cost cap provision. Um, can you explain that? What exactly does that mean? With the co- what, what is the intention with the cost cap provision? Yeah, the 1% cost cap uh, provision. Um, it essentially states that if, as the utilities are planning to put in the 25% renewable energy, um, if it's going to be a more than a 1% increase to the ratepayer, um, then they can extend it. So they can have more time to plan properly to make sure that the um, systems that they're putting in and that they're implementing will be cheaper and more affordable for the, the ratepayer. Um, Because we want people to not see huge uh, increases and spikes in their energy bills. We want to make sure that this is affordable um, and still environmentally friendly. Uh, Is there a potential for this to to be more expensive? Is it going to cost more money to move to these renewable energy initiatives? I think it all depends on how you look at it. As I was saying earlier, um, the utilities, you know, sent... Um, 10 billion out of state to import coal over 10 years, and the price of coal has actually increased by 81% during that same time. So it's a question not necessarily of how much more will it cost, uh, um, so much as what are our different options and looking at the different costs and benefits of those. So certainly switching to renewable energy would also have many benefits that the costs aren't currently. Um, <laughs> accounted for, such as improving public health, reducing asthma, and other respiratory illnesses and heart disease. So there's all these hidden costs that we're paying for anyway. So yes. Yeah, <laughs> it's a famous <laughs> phrase. <laughs> you talked about wind energy and, and solar energy. Do we have the infrastructure and technology in place right now to produce more and more of that, or is it still technology in the works? Because I know some people, they're always hesitant to move towards renewable energy because they feel like it's not well enough established yet. We don't we don't necessarily know that this is a permanent fix. Um, it, it, is that necessarily true, or are there more established um, uh, renewable energy sources out there as that are being used currently, I guess? I think um, partly it's a question of looking at where the costs have come over the past decade or so, which reflects how um, reliable and useful these technologies are. And if you look at solar panels, for example, just over the last few years, the price has decreased by 25%. Um, As I was saying earlier, the cost of wind energy in Michigan is now lower than new coal and pretty competitive with most other forms of energy. So it's uh, really coming into its own at this point. It isn't. The the technologies have been around for a number of years. We've been using wind energy in a variety of different forms for centuries. Um, And solar energy has been around since, you know, late 70s, early 80s is when it really started to become adopted. So the the technology is there, the infrastructure is there, 
Um, it's just a matter of utilizing it to the best of our abilities. Now, this ballot measure has also gotten a lot of support from businesses. Mm -hmm. um, why do you think businesses have decided to attach themselves or support this proposal? The I think the business community is in favor of this ballot initiative um, in regards to jobs. Um, a number of the businesses that have come on board are manufacturing businesses. Um, there's one of the sayings that we have is that there's 800 or 8,000 parts in a wind turbine, and all of them can be produced here in Michigan. Um, it's a huge manufacturing state. We've got the knowledge. We've got the skill set um, to be able to, to really make that work. We also have a number of renewable energy installers um, who would love to see something like this because that's, that's their bread and butter. That's what they do on a day-to-day -day basis. So the, the jobs and the financially, it, it makes sense for businesses to support this. And one of the great things about renewable energy for business owners is over the long term, it helps to lock in um, regular utility rates with fossil fuels. You never know where the price of the fuel is going to go up or down. But with renewables, once they're built, <clears throat> you know that the fuel is not going to because cost anything because it's the wind or sun. Yeah, it's yeah. renewing. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Well, hopefully, hopefully exactly. we yeah. continue to if have wind. If the sun stops <laughs> shining, you know, we we've got other problems, problems we but we can problems. work together to solve yeah. those too, I'm sure. Yeah. And so this, this ballot measure is going to be on the November 6th ballot? Correct. Correct. Proposition 3 on, on the November 6th ballot. All right. Well, I'd like to thank you both for taking the time to come out and talk. Thanks for Absolutely. having us. Absolutely. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Emmanuel Berry, and you are listening to Impact Exposure. It's Saturday morning. You wake up, drink your morning coffee, and check your email. However, according to a Washington Post article, some employers are asking workers to avoid that last step leave the email in the office. Today, to talk about finding the balance between work and home life and avoiding employee burnout, we welcome Paul Spiegelman. Paul is the chief executive officer of the barrel companies. One company called The Circle concentrates on creating a positive culture in the workplace. He is also the author of Why Is Everyone Smiling? The Secret to Passion, Productivity, and Profit. Paul, welcome to Impact Exposure. Thanks for having me. In this business cycle of, you know, 24 hours, things are constantly going. Uh, technology has kind of really blurred the line between um, the office and home. Why is it important or is it important to make a clear distinction um, between the two? Well, I think that technology and the Internet certainly have blurred that line a little bit. And uh, so it's quite much easier for people to stay connected at all times, uh, even when they're home, um, to their business. And so that's created some adjustments both for employees and employers. Um, and, and so what are some of these adjustments? Is it that people are, are people, um, is, it, is it making it more productive? Are people more productive because they have access to this online? Or is it, is it potentially harmful because people are working all the time? <laughs> well, I think it's a little bit of both. I think that uh, access to information is good, and with email and texting and social media, we have immediate access to information, and in general, that can make us more productive because we can respond more quickly and deal with things right away, not put them off. At the same time, it can be overdone, and many of us get uh, addicted, so uh, so to speak, to the, the ability to get that information, and as employees, sometimes we feel obligated to respond to those requests that come in from our bosses. So we tend to 
uh, stay up later, uh, work later, look at those emails on the weekends and respond. And uh, we're trying to, in many ways, protect our own, our own jobs. From the employer standpoint, I think that the economy uh, gave an opportunity to utilize some of these tools to maybe get a little bit more out of existing employees and maybe not have to hire that next employee yet because we could make uh, our existing employees work a little bit longer and harder. But I'm not so sure it's the economy as it is so much the uh, the ability to get information quickly. So uh, while I think it's good, I think there we have certainly seen where it can cause burnout for employees who just simply are uh, too connected too often. And what what is the danger of this burnout? Is it is it, does that potentially hurt the company in the sense that they're not going to be as productive? Um, is it just simply harmful for the employee? Um, yeah, address that. I think it's it's uh, harmful for everyone. I think that uh, if an employee is working too hard, it creates stress. It can create stress at work. It can create stress at home. People who have high levels of stress are simply not as productive or not as happy. It brings morale down. We see there's a connection between employee morale and uh, profitability. So uh, our job as employers, in part, is to make sure that our employees are leading uh, as healthy and as balanced lives as possible. So some companies have actually taken to policies of asking their employees not to even respond to emails, for example, in the evenings or on weekends, hoping that restores a little bit of that balance. Is that practical? Uh, is that something that people can do? Because I know in my industry or or what I want to do in, in journalism, I feel like if I'm not checking my email every half an hour, I am missing out on on the next big story or or something. Uh, so so does that work as a as putting it as a policy? I'm not sure it would work. I don't think I could do that in my companies, and and uh, yet I understand what's behind it. I, I think that. It, one, it depends on the industry you're in. So certainly in journalism or in a critical industry where you have to be available because things are time-sensitive, you, you ne- it's necessary for you to look. But there's a lot of industries and businesses where it's not quite as time-sensitive, but our curiosity takes over, and so we get involved and we respond. And so one of the things that I suggest people do once in a while is, you know, take a half a day or something and um, take a risk and, and don't read the emails and see what happens and look back and say, you know, were those really critical for me to to look at? And you'll find that um, quite often they're not really things that you need to respond to immediately. So some of some of uh, becoming a healthy employee is, is on the, the shoulders of the employee themselves to kind of take a step back and analyze what, what is really important. Not only that, I think that it's important for the employee to take a little bit of ownership in initiating the conversation with their boss, their supervisor, to set expectation and guidelines around responses because the natural tendency is to respond to everything immediately. But you'd be surprised that some of the bosses don't necessarily expect that. And maybe they're up at night because they want to get it off of their desk or their chest and they want to get it to you, but they're not expecting you to respond back in 10 minutes. So if you sit down, and especially if you're having issues around it, and sit down with your supervisor and say, hey, look, you know, I, I want to do a great job for you, but I find that there's times when um, I, feel, I feel like I need to just check out for a little while. And, and for example, I want to come home at 5 and be with my kids for a couple hours. I'll promise to check in at 9 o'clock. Then you can make those kind of arrangements. And most supervisors will be reasonable. Of course, there's exceptions to that, but I think uh, generally a good conversation pays off.
Um, do you think that these these companies, by suggesting that their employees stay off of email on the weekend and after work hours, that they're improving kind of their corporate culture and trying to move away from being so much about productivity, but also taking a look at their employees and their needs? Well, I think it's I think it's kind of one and the same. I'm I I don't know which companies are doing that. Um, I think that ultimately a business. Uh, the responsibility of business is to take care of its key asset and its people. And so things like making sure that they they don't respond 24-7 or, or that they we have wellness programs to help them work out or that we put 401k programs in to help them save money or we put training programs in to help um, grow their careers are all things meant to uh, enhance the lives of the people that work with us and in turn um, expect them to do good work, be productive employees, and uh, serve our customers well. What are some other issues that can cause burnout for employees besides just the the, the constant having um, available of technology and feeling like you have to work your time? What are other things that can cause burnout? Well, there's lots of uh, pressures and issues that can um, get on employees and cause that stress. I think one of the biggest ones is simply their relationship with their supervisor. Um, Supervisors can cause tremendous amount of stress, and if you think about why employees generally leave a company, they don't really leave the company, they leave that person, and it's because of the stress that's been created in that relationship. Um, And no matter what product or service we sell, we're in the relationship business. People need to understand that. And so um, there's tremendous stress trying to please a boss, uh, fear of job security, um, making sure that we, we meet those deadlines, etc. And in many cases, those can be handled by having good open conversations. And uh, I would always counsel people that when they get to that point, number one, have courage to have that conversation with your supervisor. Um, go beyond the supervisor if you feel like that's the only thing you have left to do and do it in a professional way. And lastly, um, if it's something that's going to uh, truly impact your your life, your health, your family, you've got to look for another place to work. Now, your company, um, one of the companies, uh, The Circle, concentrates on creating a positive culture in the workforce. Why is it important to have a positive culture in the workforce? What are the, what are the benefits of that? Well, I think there's tremendous benefits. One, as a, as a leader um, in my uh, life and business um, spanning almost 30 years, it's because I think it's the right thing to do. I think the right thing to do is to treat people with respect and dignity and give them a great environment in which to do their work. I also think that there's a connection between creating that environment and creating productivity and profit. So uh, not only do I think it's the right thing to do, but I think it's good for business. And I'd like to see other companies realize that the key to success generally lies within their four walls in terms of creating a culture where their people are engaged and will do better work for them regardless of the product or service that they sell. And there's many ways to do that, everything from having a set of core values that are ingrained into the company's decision-making to having a reward and recognition program that's robust to showing that we simply care about our employees and the totality of their lives. Do you think that there's a lack of that in in corporate America? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think that there's a, a trend toward those kinds of things that I just described, Mm -hmm. more because it is being shown to help drive better outcomes for companies. But the old way of doing business um, is 
the command and control way, and employees are looked at as commodities. And I know that you know my company and others that I know in this space are absolutely. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Hey, what floor are you going to? <clears throat> oh, uh, three. Thanks. <coughs> hey, didn't we uh, have... Yeah, that one class. Yeah, that's so funny to, <laughs> to see you, because I <coughs> thought maybe we could... Uh, would you ever want to... Um, I was wondering if you, if I could stick my finger in your eye. What? No. Oh, I just flushed some toilets and touched a doorknob. What? I've been keeping this moist Kleenex Ew, in my pocket. That's uh, so gross. I thought we could, you know, just stick my finger Ugh. in your eye. Is that weird? No. Don't touch me. What's wrong with you? Oh, sorry. Well, ever since you got in the elevator, you've been coughing all over your hands and pressing those buttons, so I just thought you were into that kind of thing. Free. Studies show that three quarters of women and only half of men actually wash their hands in the bathroom. That's nasty. Stop the flu and other germs by regularly washing with soap and avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. More at cdc.gov slash clean hands. Impact 89FM. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime Time. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. From 10 p.m. until midnight Sunday nights, listen to the Impact Afterglow, where you can hear a variety of relaxed tracks to help you ease into the start of a new week. Only on Impact Primetime. Prime now back to Impact Exposure. Emmanuel Berry, and you are listening to Impact Exposure. It was a windy weekend in Grand Rapids, Michigan, but that didn't stop crowds of people from exploring Art Prize, the annual art exhibition and competition held in downtown Grand Rapids, Michigan. Our reporter, Gabrielle Saldivia, takes us on an audio tour of the festival. You blow on it and your wishes are carried away. I wanted everyone to remember that moment when they've done it. So you say every wish that's made on here comes true? Well, mine have, so I assume they all will. (laughs) How long did it take you to make this piece? Well, I'm 49, so it took 49 years. Uh, everything an artist does is, is really a culmination of everything they've ever done. So after Art Prize, where do you envision your piece going? Well, this piece is sold. This is going to a children's hospital. My name is Craig Mitchell-Smith. I'm a glass artist from Okemos, Michigan. Just asking people what they think about the pieces and why they're here today at Art Prize. Exciting, something new to do each year. Are you from Grand Rapids? Yes. What's been your favorite thing you've seen today? Well, we just got here, but I really like the, uh, the, the animals made out of the recycled metals. You want to help me out? Sure. Thanks. What do you want me to do? Chisel out the center on just sand it. Just go ahead and rub it down. Yeah, yeah, I use a large gouge to get started. Okay. And uh, bring it down to my smoothing gouge, which flattens out all those ridges to some extent. How long have you been doing this? Well, let's see, I got here about three hours ago. So, and but, how, how's oh, it been going today? <laughs> not too bad. It's a little chilly, it's a little windy, but the crowds have been great, and I've been busy. I've probably made, I don't know, a couple hundred balloons so far today. But I also am doing this because I have a clownfish here as a display, an exhibit at the uh, Courtyard by Marriott. So, here is your monkey balloon. Feed him a banana later, okay? Uh, my name's Danny Eckert. I'm from Grand Rapids. So tell me a little bit about this piece and your connection with it. 
uh, the name of the piece is Return to Eden, and we met the artist through the host uh, process of Art Prize, and uh, she spent a week with us. And where is the artist from? She's from Linden, Washington. What has been the reaction you've heard about the, her piece so far? So far, she's been very well received. My name is Travis Fields, and uh, my father is Gary Fields, and together we represent A Second Chance at Life, the T-Rex project. Can you tell me a little bit about your piece, like sure. it's made of? So the T-Rex itself is made up of paper mache clay um, over cardboard and other recycled materials um, with a steel tube underlying structure to hold it all up. All in all, it took about 4,000 hours to complete over the course of 11 months. And how's the reaction to your piece been? The reaction has been phenomenal so far. Kids are in awe that they're getting to see um, essentially a real T-Rex in person Mm -hmm. um, and outside. Um, And for adults, too, it's kind of re-enlivening their spirits. Uh, For the ones that loved dinosaurs when they were a kid, it's, it's kind of bringing them back to that. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Thank you for listening to Exposure. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.